it's Disraeli Smith, and welcome to another edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. On this edition, we spoke with Professor Jonathan Ladd, Associate Professor of the McCourt School of Public Policy, and Michael Demick, President of Pew Research Center, and we spoke with them about the recap of the 2018 McCourt Lee Conference. Uh, we talked about uncertainty in polling. We talked about the Baker Poll, which is a new poll uh, that's going to study the uh, lack of trust amongst our institutions. And we talked about a lot of conversations that resolved around the Lee's Conference theme, Crisis of Confidence, Understanding Why Americans Have Lost Faith in Our Institutions. I'm Michael Dimmick. I'm president of the Pew Research Center. I'm John Ladd. I'm a professor of public policy and government here at Georgetown. Perfect. And so Michael and uh, John are here with Disraeli and Eric from GPPR. And we are here today to talk about several topics. But first, we want to just tell our listeners that we just left the annual McCourt Lead Conference, uh, where we, amongst other things, heard about a new poll called the Baker Poll. Uh, and so I wanted to first start with getting a little bit of insight of what that is, what is it looking to study, how is it adding to the suite of tools that McCourt is going to be known for in five years' time. Well, well, thanks for asking about this. Um, so um, we're interested in better understanding um, the lack of confidence and better in institutions in the United States and developing you know, solutions for solving that. And a lot of people have studied this, including, and a lot of people have studied this very well, you know, including Gallup, including the Pew Research Center, including the General Social Survey, including the American National Election Study. So um, our goal was, you know, was not to be a, a competitor with these other organizations, but kind of develop our own niche that adds to what everybody knows. And so, and so we all get better at know at, at understanding this, this, um, and and building solutions based on pooling our knowledge. So, uh, we envisioned kind of our niche as um, open-ended responses and taking time to allow people not just to answer multiple choice questions about confidence in very a long list of institutions, but also let people, uh, in their own words, describe their thoughts about these institutions and why their confidence might be high or low. Um, another uh, niche we thought is, is kind of in the same survey, trying to ask not just a series of confidence questions, uh, but also a series of support for democracy questions, so like support for basic democratic principles. So, because our one of our specific goals is to understand, you know, our support for democracy itself and and principles related to democracy, like the idea that the other party is legitimate. And, the, and, that, and, that, and that people who support the other party are legitimate citizens in society, and, and that there is some common base of facts and knowledge, is that connected to um, your faith in, in a broad range of institutions or not? So asking those sort of questions on the same survey was another specific goal of, of this project that we thought um, could uh, let us stand out. Um, and again, could be kind of our niche in this area while also learning from the many other people who, who study this. So when's the survey coming up? <laughs> so um, we, we want to use this, we have a draft questionnaire and that's, that's how I describe what's already, what we already want to ask about. And we want to use this conference to get ideas and suggestions about things to ask we might not have thought of. And, and and build connections and conversations with people who would suggest how to make this better. 
And so we're going to go into the field and do the survey in April, and then um, we're going to issue a report in the summer. Um, the, the, the delay is, is analyzing the open-ended. So the reason it's not like three weeks after <laughs> uh, is that we want to um, it takes a long time to, answer, to analyze open-ended questions. <laughs> We're developing some computational methods to do it. Um, uh, and our partner, um, I'm the principal investigator of the project, and the co-principal investigator is Josh Tucker, who's a politics professor at NYU. Um, and uh, he is, his expertise is specifically analyzing text, analyzing text responses to surveys. Is, and so we, so um, that's a portion of the project he's going to be heavily in, involved with. So we will have, and we may issue a small, small short press release, you know, a month after it's done or a few weeks after it's done with some of the top line numbers. But I think the key value added is the open-endeds. And after we're done processing those, we're going to issue a report in the summer. Neat. So I spent a long day talking about all these issues, uh, lots of interesting questions, but I was curious what your biggest takeaways from today were, whether they were the, the questions asked, things that you're thinking about for the survey upcoming, um, what was sort of the, the high level highlights of today and uh, what everybody said. Interesting. Well, the conference was primarily around public trust in institutions, predominantly government and governance institutions. Uh, but I think it blended out more broadly into confidence in media, confidence in other information sources, um, and that there's a, there's a sort of moment of um, unease that a lot of us are in, whether we're citizens or, or people in government or you know, researchers, uh, that the kind of rules by which we knew what authority information had and what we could trust and what we couldn't trust is, is a little scrambled, uh, it's hard to know, and that what we've been tracking in survey work and is, is this steep decline in trust in institutions, particularly government, over the past decades. And so where does that leave us in a democracy? You know, if, if people don't trust the government, they don't trust the actors in the government, they don't think the systems work, that you have a feeling that, that many, many people expressing a feeling that all these systems are rigged against normal people, uh, people like me, let's just say, um, and that we're, you know, somehow someone else is winning and we're losing. I think that was actually one of the really interesting um, takeaways of it because the conversation talk, focused a lot on political, political polarization, partisanship. But I think one of the really interesting observations from the conference is how much this kind of z what we call the zero sum nature of politics and, and maybe even more broadly uh, society has become a kind of defining feature of this, that um, it's, it's even hard for people today to think about an instance of government policy or social change that is actually a benefit to the public good writ large. It all seems to be framed in one way or another as a win for somebody and, and therefore a loss for somebody else. And that as more and more issues have co coalesced around that partisan divide these days, that that partisan battle seems yeah. to be a big contributor. It's both a result of that decline in trust, but a big contributor to that decline in trust. Because as regimes change, now that Trump's in office, Democrats feel alienated and distrustful. When it was Obama in office, it was the Republicans. And that as you, even as you go back and forth, the net levels of trust and confidence in the system mm -hmm. seem to just keep eroding away. 
Well, and I, yeah, that's all right. And and I would uh, <laughs> uh, another th- I, I, building off that. I think a, a theme that came up that that Pew has documented really well in, in a number of their studies is that it's not true that we have maybe bigger divisions or or even different divisions than we had before. Like anytime you say, well, we've never fought over this, someone points out some historical example of, <laughs> yeah, we did fight over this before. And with this, something that this has happened. I guess if you're looking for what's different, it's that all these divisions are correlated with each other, are aligned with each other, is that things that used to cross cut the parties, um, like I think you gave the example of Viet- Vietnam. Um, oh, number of people, number of people of the whole day give the answer. Example of, you know, Vietnam was very divisive, but it split both parties. There are pro and anti Vietnam factions in both parties. I mean, um, and uh, uh, for years, you know, in American history, um, one of the ways that civil rights was kept off the agenda is because it split both parties, right? Split the Democrats and split the there were Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, Northern Republicans, right? Republic, uh, Southern Republicans, right? And and all these and, and they were all and just general ideology split the parties. There were liberal, liberal and conservative Republicans, liberal and conservative Democrats, right? And now all these divisions, whether it's racial divisions, whether it's opinions about major issues of controversy, uh, other major major issues of the day, whether it's partisanship itself. Are all aligned, are all correlated together, and it, or it's well, some some degree sectional conflict, although there are divisions within within states and things like that. But but a lot of divisions are are the same division. So the other the person on the other side is on the other side of every fight, every political fight, and that is what seems to intensify things and lead to these non-policy or might we think like irrational polarization or whatever, like yeah. like these things where outside of policy. I think uh, was it Lily Mason was pointing out on her panel that she's got data in her book that you know there's a large a large percentage of people it's like 40% of people um, look for look in her book to get the exact number but it's about 40% of people say they don't want to live next to someone of the other party mm-hmm. rather than that. so all these other things get as a symptom when the other other uh, Certain other types of people are on the opposing side on everything. Yeah, and so I think you guys hit it on the theme of you know lack of trust and the polarization and you know uh, people you know opposite opinions and all that is just a long way of saying it's a lot of uncertainty in how we deal with things, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know our theme this year is just that uncertainty. <laughs> Um, where our spring edition, spring edition rather, is launching in a few weeks. Shameless plug. Um, <laughs> and you know, we are kind of tying uh, various articles and things together across multiple spectrums when you think of uncertainty. I think two questions here. Obviously, there's a significant amount of uncertainty in our institutions, the future of them. How, are they going to work better for people of race, uh, gender, etc.? Are we going to, you know, divide systematic, you know, uh, barriers, if you will? Uh, how much of that is actually possible, you know, in today's climate? Uh, and, and secondly, how much of that, you know, is the uncertainty in our institutions a lack of understanding versus just a lack of trust? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think I would say on the second one, is it a lack of understanding or lack of trust? I think to some extent, people understand pretty well that the political system in Washington, meaning the elected officials and how they operate, they understand pretty well that it's not working. I mean, they, there's yeah. nothing they're missing there, you know, <laughs> that, that the level of partisanship in Congress has created an environment where very little gets done 
And when it does, it is sort of single-handed on one side or the other, not out of any sense of actual collaboration and coordination. I think what they may not fully understand is that below that level, there's a whole lot that governments are doing you know, that may be making real changes in our lives, for better or worse, uh, but that because of, and this came up today in the conversation uh, with some of the representatives for media organizations, there's such a hyper focus on Capitol Hill and the White House and the drama there because it's really newsworthy and it is important. I mean, it's not to dismiss that focus, but that they don't have the bandwidth then to, to really go beyond that and understand what's happening in states, uh, in localities, um, and how there are real changes happening that are meaningful. So I think it's a combination of uh, you know, misunderstanding or not really not being provided enough information about what's going on in other parts uh, of the government system. I mean, in terms of you know uncertainty about you know whether we're going to find good solutions. I mean, I think I I, I made the point today, and, and I believe this that we're we are at a sort of inflection point in the role of citizens in a way uh, that that this new technology has sort of the potential to empower and disempower, right? That we can be at the whims of this sort of overwhelming amount of information and there are ways that it can be used to manipulate us. Absolutely, we've been seeing more and more about that. It seems like every week in the news. Um, there are ways where it can distract us from what's really important, even if not for nefarious purposes. But I think there are also ways that it can really redefine the way that citizens can engage and rethink the way that actual citizen participation works outside of the traditional norms and structures of it, voting, you know, maybe writing a letter to your member of Congress, all the stuff we used to measure in our polls for years, they all seem a little, I mean, I'm not saying voting's not important, but a lot of the other stuff, it's like there are other ways to use these, these networks and uh, develop new uh, opportunities for citizens to actually, I think, elicit change. We've seen that developing over the last 10 years in the way that social movements really are now, digital mm -hmm. movements first, you know, uh, and then they actually turn into real movements. I think we're gonna see it this weekend here in Washington around the, the uh, gun violence mm -hmm. march. Um, and so I, I kind of feel that we're at an inflection point there and that over the next 10 years, I think we're gonna start to see ways in which that potentially could counterbalance some of those negative impacts in ways that are more controlled by people and really allow people uh, to um, uh, use those technologies for better outcomes. And the point was made earlier today by Ron Fournier, you know, that that's gonna happen in a generational way because it's the folks who truly are native to that environment who, who just, inherently understand a different way of connecting with people who they agree with and with people they might disagree with that's just very different than folks who grew up in a different information environment. That's a, that's a great answer. If I, I would just append a jumping off, jumping off from that I, uh, to a, a little bit of different, a different thought that we did discuss in, in the conference today, which is there is kind of an information crisis in local government and state government that media organizations are trying to solve, but is definitely not a solved problem yet. So uh, in terms of just information mm -hmm. gathering, um, not only does the, you know, partially because the, there aren't great economic models 
for state news and, and, and local newspapers that cover state politics. In part because, like you said, like the game of national politics is so exciting. <laughs> it's like when you, yeah. it's like the, the analog is like when you can watch pro sports while you're right. watching the local <laughs> local teams, right? So like it's, yeah. it, it engages you with the, the national fight. And, the, and so it's hard to get eyeballs that'll pay the bills for these new media organizations yeah. that cover state capitals. And so there is a huge drop off in information about state capitals and it's a da huge danger and yeah. a huge opportunity for corruption and just bad gov bad government. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we talked, some, several media organizations talked about ideas for that. Um, uh, I know NPR is, um, Elizabeth Jensen, who's the ombudsman for NPR mentioned that she knows that NPR has an initiative uh, where local public radio stations um, enhance their local news coverage and some and pool those resources um, and, and they encourage all, they're encouraging their local state, local public radio stations to do more local and state reporting. Um, and it, it's, but beyond, beyond that, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard problem because a lot of it's an economics problem and an eyeballs problem. So there's not any great economic model and there's not enough interest to make those economics, that economics work, even though it's, it's essential for good government in the United States. A lot of things, a lot of policy is state policy. I would love to give credit to whoever had asked this question earlier, but I can't recall, but I really appreciated both of your answers. Um, we talked a little bit about how journalists have a little bit of a responsibility and how they report. How do you see uh, the responsibility translating to polling? And you talked a little bit about Pew's balancing of reporting mm -hmm. the facts and being a fact tank. And if you could all just expand on that in this age of all the untruths and uncertainty and all the things we've been talking about do you feel like your responsibilities have changed at all and if not um why they why that doesn't matter yeah i think it's a good question i would link it back to another question that was asked of the media panel which is you know should we give up on a model of unbiased coverage and just accept that look everybody has a viewpoint in this world and why not just wear your viewpoint on your sleeve and, and put that out there as you cover facts, as you do journalism, as you do reporting. And I think, you know, the answer to that, and it came up in the panel, is yeah, both. You know, I think there's a role for both if as our media environment continues to expand and diversify. Um, you know, there's room for all of that, whether it's comedy shows, whether it's, you know, the Weekly Standard, who we had the editor-in-chief here. Um, you know, whether it's Pew Research Center, we can all be a part of a, of, of a good, healthy mix of, of that kind of information. Because it is a little bit different when somebody's doing a research project and they have an outcome, you know, that they lean toward. doesn't mean that the research is inherently, you know, irrelevant or the journalism. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's feeding into a larger narrative. And, and, and I think there's a role at Pew Research Center we hold very firmly to a completely neutral, non-partisan, non non-advocacy. We never make policy prescriptions. Uh, we never advise on what the right thing to do is with the data, uh, in part just to protect our role in that ecosystem of information as one, one source where we provide the highest quality information we can, we analyze it and try to tell you what, the, what that information can inform 
but then we're going to stop just short of the goal line, and then it's up to someone else to figure out what the score is. You know, what the what where you go with it. What what do you how would you actually take action or do something with that information? Um, that's not our job. That's not our role in that ecosystem. But that's not to to dismiss the role of others. And I think there are a lot of ways that that can play out. I would agree with the notion that that maybe we went through an era where we were trying to force everybody into almost a one-size-fits-all model of that, and I think that's that's gone. You know, that's that's past. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, that's a great answer. I mean, and and, and Pew deals with this much more frequently yeah. than I have experienced dealing with this. So I mean, and and so I'm sure Michael has thought about this, you know, more than I have thought about this. But I mean, one thing we are thinking about with the Baker poll is that we want to not just related to using data and stuff. We do that. We want to. Put some visualizations and reports uh, on the website, and we will also we're also putting out uh, our own PDF report, and we're also going to post as Pew does with many of its mm -hmm. data sets, with um, almost all, all its data sets, almost all of its data sets. We're going to post the the uh, uh, raw data for other people to analyze and use, um, uh, and improve their own improve their own research. So mm -hmm. if you know if you, if the people want to think we missed something or um, you know, the, they want to recreate, you know, figures we've made or analyze. They, they're happy to do that, which is something that that, that Pews, Pews has a tradition of doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I actually want to pick up on that a little bit and talk about methodology, uh, mm -hmm. sample sizing, et cetera, really quick. Um, you know, obviously at McCord, it's a very, you know, quantitatively driven, data-driven program. You know, in many of my quant classes, we've had to sit here and, and reread papers and my quant professors will talk, talk about, you know, the methodology and the, and the model or what was left out, or we look at a poll, why something was included and not included, and, and those different things. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, some best practices, you know, for our listeners, you know, when they think of polling, you know, I think you talked a little bit earlier about overcompensating for, you know, racial uh, tendencies and different races as part of the sample, you know, for the banker poll. What are some of the things that Pew does to get an accurate representation, you know, of the country and maybe how those things are different than your typical political poll that sometimes can be left field because it's all cell phone based or things of that nature that we're experiencing in, you know, 2018. Oh, yeah, this is, a, it's a really interesting time for polling in both the best and worst elements of that, uh, of the word interesting. Uh, you know, we were in a period in, in survey work of real stability for maybe 25 years where there was a really well tried and true tested model of doing polls over the telephone that really was quite rock solid. Um, there was a big set of surveyors out there who could do high quality work. Um, and now we're at a point where the ability to do high quality telephone surveys is still there. There still can be very, very reliable, but the cost structure has gone way up. Cell phones actually have helped us more than they've hurt us because they've allowed us to reach uh, populations that in, in the history of, of, of landline phones were the hardest to reach. Um, people who move a lot, people lower income, younger people, especially college age, mm -hmm. we weren't doing well at all getting those folks even you know, 15 years ago and now where our samples are actually much more representative of a cross-section of the country than they, they used to be. But uh, what's happened in the meantime is the ability to do surveys online has grown up, and that's become a much, much bigger uh, methodology for us at the Pew Research Center. Last year, we, we first time did most of our survey work online. Um, and there, 
you've got a whole wide range of methodological approaches that are happening. Some of them are pretty sketchy. We, a word like transparency comes up and it, it's like nobody will tell you anything about where they're reaching people, how they're doing it. And those numbers are being circulated out there in, in the environment and, and they're sort of treated equivalently with survey work that's really thoughtful and rigorous and makes a real effort to be inclusive and representative of all voices in the, in the country. Um, so I would say that as a consumer of polling right now, it is understandably difficult to be able to assess uh, what to really put a lot of weight into and what is maybe kind of a parlor game, you know? And um, there aren't a lot of really good rules of the road for that in terms of, well, you can trust an online poll or you can't, or you can, I mean, one of the core principles we adhere to is probability sampling, you know, like the old, you know, picking marbles out of a jar, kind of every marble has an equal chance of being picked. Um, and we still believe that we want our work to be grounded in principles of probability so we can calculate margins of error and we can really be rigorous about it. But that's not to say that there aren't some people who are doing really well-structured, advanced work in other ways of getting people to participate in polls that don't follow that, that probability model, yet still can be modeled and, and shaped and weighted in ways that, that lead to pretty reliable answers. So um, it's, it's a tricky mode. I have a lot of trouble giving people like a clear scorecard, you know, to, it has to check these three boxes to be trustworthy. Um, and um, I, uh, but I, I, I tend to be an optimist. I think that the, the, the opportunity is really great to, to potentially be doing even higher quality survey work as we really adapt to um, the ability to do more uh, online. Um, it, and a lot of it just comes down to a fundamental. On the phone, we had to call you up with a human being and interrupt you live in your life, whatever you're doing, and try to steal 15, 20 minutes, half an hour out of your day, that's a really awkward way to try to get people to participate and to actually get good information out of them is talking over the phone. And switching this mode, we're actually gonna be experimenting with, with text message surveys over the next year. You know, look, it could take you a week to finish the survey because you're just gonna do like a question here and there and whatever, that's fine, you know? We're going to outsource. We're going to try to push push it to the convenience of the participant more than at our you know control. And I think that way we're going to get better answers. We're going to get higher participation. I think it's going to be there are a lot of things that I that I think are going to make polling better as we kind of go through this transition. It's it's an it's a it's an exciting time. I, the, um, <laughs> and I say uh, Pew has been innovative in this in this in this field. Um, I. And, and uh, for the any McCourt students uh, listening in in my political polling class uh, in, in public policy 761 uh, uh, every spring uh, if you want to mm -hmm. take it um, we read you have a uh, how we design the America trends right. panel <laughs> and we, we read that as a, as a, as a case study of, right. of the, how online polling works and I think the thing people don't often know when they think about you know phone polls versus online polls is right um, you can online polls just refer to how you answer the questions, right? So you're answering the questions on a phone or a tablet or a laptop, but how we picked you could vary a lot, mm -hmm. right? So we still could have originally picked you to do this by randomly sampling phones, 
um, randomly sampling uh, uh, cell phones and landlines. And then, but rather than talk to you over the phone, we, at, we contact you and follow up and eventually you're gonna answer it at your leisure this way. But, but uh, or we could have randomly sampled you some other way, or you could be what's called opt-in. So we, we advertise and got you to volunteer in some way to participate. And so I think sometimes online poll, it's true, that's the term of art, so we should keep using that. But sometimes obscures a, a lot of differences because it's the sampling method and how you were picked, I think, that matters at least as much. Obviously, there are mode differences. It may matter, like it's different in answering things on a screen than a phone. But it's, the, it's how you were picked, the selection method that is key. I mean, the American Trends Panel that Pew runs mm -hmm. um, is people who agree to answer um, uh, polls online, meaning you answer the questionnaire online, but you were originally randomly sampled. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, originally phone, phone randomly right. sampled. And, and so, and then there are a variety and different organizations do this differently. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes they originally random sample in one way, some, some in another, mm -hmm. some, they, they recruit people, but they maybe recruit in a more inclusive or less inclusive way. And that's why you want to know how they found the respondents really more than whether it's an online or phone poll, how they're actually answering the questions. You want, I mean, that's the key. Can I get on a little soapbox about uncertainty? Sure, please. Because please. <laughs> there is a thing around this that I do try to offer advice on as a consumer of survey work, um, which is the illusion of precision from large numbers. Um, and you're seeing a lot of that going on now. And I, it's something I really want to warn people against. There are a lot of individual surveys out there who can tell you, oh, we interviewed you know, 20,000 people. That doesn't actually necessarily make it any better than a really well-crafted study of 1,000 people, right? Because you really need to know, how do they get those 20,000 people? And if they actually got 20,000 people, the notion that they didn't, they, the, the cost of doing that in a rigorous way would be overwhelming. So more than likely, they pick people up through some kind of unknown way and they're probably not going to tell you. And then they applied a whole lot of modeling on the back end of it to try to make whoever they did get look like a cross-section of the country. And in the process of doing that, the power of having that many people may well be you know, almost meaningless, um, if not completely meaningless, depending on how they did it. Um, so I would just say, number one, don't get fooled just by large numbers. It really is important to think about how the survey was done and constructed. And then I would take that to another level which is, and just because somebody can take five polls or 50 polls or 500 polls on a similar topic and mash them all together into an aggregation of polls and put like an average on it, doesn't necessarily make that, that as much more precise as you might think it would because they're mixing good information and bad information into that aggregation. Some do it in more sophisticated ways where they try to you know, give different weightings and scores to different sources. But at the end of the day, I think the human brain is easily fooled by large numbers, right? We think, oh my gosh, you know, they, they talked to that many people or that's a summary of 100 different polls. It's gotta be much more precise, right? It's mm -hmm. gotta have a lot of certainty to it. We know. And then some of them go that extra step to saying, I can predict from that with the probability that this is going to happen with a degree of certainty, 86.4% chance <laughs> that something's going to happen, right? 
And then that creates an illusion of precision, right? That just isn't there. That the, the, the data is not nearly as precise as, as and, and I'm, I'm worried. I think that's a really big issue because when, the, when it turns out the data wasn't up to the task, then we want to throw out the whole endeavor. And that's not just an issue for pollsters. I'm a pollster, so that might come across as defensive. That's, a, that's the issue for science, right? Writ large, there's a lot of imprecision in science. You know, they do a study, they think that you know, eating more carbohydrates might have this effect on you. Da, 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 da. We start making life decisions on that, and then we find out that later on, that study wasn't as precise as maybe it came across, either by the researchers themselves or by the way the media picked up on the story, or even just the way we read it and maybe mm -hmm. wanted to believe something in it. Like, oh yeah, I should be drinking you know, five beers a day, right? It's going to make me healthier. You know, and so there's a way that, that the kind of illusion of, of, of certainty that can come from large numbers is really a risk. And it, it, you know, when you said your theme was about uncertainty, I just want to really emphasize that science, including social science and survey science, it, it's got uncertainty to it. You got to take those margins seriously because if you, if you overread it and you expect perfection, then you're going to be disappointed. And then you're either going to have made bad choices, like about whether to vote or not, because you thought the election was a done deal. Or you're going to be really disappointed and start to just ignore data altogether. So that's a big issue going on. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, is that the advice you'd give us? You know, policy students yeah. in school. You know, many of our listeners, are policy students, are interested in public policy. Mm -hmm. To you know, not believe you know large sample sizes. To not to shame you know real clear politics, but not <laughs> to believe that aggregate of those percentages, you know, that give the president's uh -huh. approval rating, but to actually look at the devil in the details yeah. and, and really figure out what to believe and yeah. not believe. I think that's ex that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, look, I'm an advocate for data. I believe that society advances when it knows how to use data more effectively, you know. Um, otherwise, we're just working off of the latest anecdote or somebody's opinion or whatever. Data drives good decisions. But there's a way in which when we get an overly we get overconfident about data when we don't respect the the variances when we don't ex when we don't respect the limitations of data then we're liable to kind of snap back and and that that's a real risk and i i think there are a lot of ways that data is being handled responsibly these days i think that the scientific community and the media are trying to do a better job of communicating about data but the reality is that the data world is expanding exponentially, right? There's more data available today than there was yesterday and you know, tomorrow. And there's a point at which we just kind of get fooled by that data as if data in and of itself is precise. And it isn't. You, know, you have to really understand its properties and really be thoughtful about it. I don't know much to add to that other than, you know, I think there are circumstances where it can be useful, a useful bit of information to know the average mm -hmm. of several polls. And especially if you have, to a decent level, filtered out the, <laughs> the really garbage polls, right? But I think you shouldn't forget that 
there's still uncertainty. Like the fact that you've averaged polls, which is can be can be a useful tool in some circumstances, doesn't mean there isn't uncertainty, <laughs> and doesn't mean that the whole enterprise sometimes can can miss things. There, there are challenges with sampling. There are challenges with with uh, differential response rates by party in the midst of campaigns. Right, sometimes mm -hmm. some part one. Supporters of one candidate get dis more discouraged than others, or more less interested in answering polls. So there are these things which, if you go in with your eyes open, are it's fine to look at the data and be aware of that. Um, but yeah, no method should let should um, lead you to forget about the uncertainty of the whole <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's great. So we just want to say thank you guys. Thank, thank you for coming to the court leave conference and, and presenting about you know the lack of trust in institutions and data and most importantly and hopefully we all use it in a good way moving forward so thanks guys thank, thank you. you thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode of the gppr podcast we hope you enjoyed it for more content from the georgetown public policy review check out our website at www.gppreview.com our twitter at GP Policy Review or our Facebook GPP Review. Thank you.